above the entryway of every concentration camp in Nazi Germany was this sign that said, Arbeit macht frei, which simply means works makes one free. Work will liberate you. Work will give you your freedom. And the prisoners of these camps knew that they weren't going to be physically free one day. They knew it wasn't a a statement that, hey, if you work hard enough, we'll get you out of this camp. It's a philosophical statement. It was a philosophical statement that menial work, that day in and day out work, will set your mind free. You see, the prisoners knew that their freedom from this prison that they were in was only through their physical death. They knew the only way to be free from their state of reality, which they were, was not work, but that they would actually die. Work makes you free is a cruel lie. Works makes you free is not just a, a lie in a Nazi concentration camp. It's the lie of the ages. It's the lie that has been stained from age to age to age to come. It is a lie that penetrates all religions, including Christianity. It's a lie that penetrates all government, all nations, and all empires, including America. Work will set you free. It's the lie that penetrates all economic systems, socialism, communism, and yes, even capitalism. It's a lie that penetrates all relationships. If you just work hard enough, they'll be better, including our marriages. Work will set you free. And there's nothing wrong with work. Work is a good thing. Work is a gift that God gives us. But what you do, the message that what you do is your salvation is a lie. That you earn what you put into it is a lie. That your loveliness depends on your lovingness. It's a lie. Arbeit macht frei. It is the spiritual lie, a lie of every age. It's a satanic lie. It's our religious lie. Your good works will be great enough to outweigh your bad works. In the, in the cosmic scale of justice, right? If you have good works, and you have bad works, and we know we both have, we have both, that somehow if you have enough good, that, that that work will outweigh the bad, and you will be set free from whatever is imprisoning you. That is a false hope. It is a lie. Today I want you to hear the truth and hear it clearly. I want you to hear the great cosmic truth of the universe. I want you to hear the good news. And we heard it today in John 3.16, didn't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That God so loved, and so loved is not the concept of the depth or magnitude of his love. Although, yes, God's love is so great and so immeasurable, you, we, we can't measure it. But that's not what so loved means. It, it's, it, it's so loved, we're not taking a measuring stick to God and they say, hey, how much do you love us? 
right? And I had this phrase with my mom, I loved you higher to the moon, right? Or higher than the sky. Or, right? And so it was this comparison thing. And so there was like this measuring stick. And even still, my, my mom hangs up the phone like, I love you more. And I'm like, yeah, I know, mom. You love me more. I got it. <laughs> but but that's, there's no measuring stick with God's love. Like, okay, this is what love is. This is the degree. And then we're going to compare God's love. That's not what so love means. In, in 1 John 4, 16, we have this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. This is what we know about love. This is how we understand how God loves us. God is love, period. God is the measuring stick. God is is the rule. He's the canon of all things. There is not this concept of love that we put upon God. God is love. What we know about love is because what we know about God. There's not degrees of his love. There's just love. It's just God. God is the definition of love. All of God's actions are love. So when we say God so loved, it's really we're saying God loved us in this way. This is what I want you to understand in John 3, 16. God loved us in this way. This is how he demonstrated his love for us. This is really, God loved, this is the explanation of his love for us. And in what way does God love us? What does it say? He gives. He gives. God loved us in this way, he gave. He gave. Because what God's love is so creative, it's so formative, it is overflowing, it, it just never stops, and so it creates things. It creates things out of nothing. When there was something that wasn't there, God's love created. This is, the, this is actually the, the, the biggest concept of Christianity compared to other other religion is that we have a God that for, is before all time, and I know this is hard to understand before all time because I just explained something in times in terms of time, but God creates all things, including time. And so God describes himself in a Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. And one of the primary reasons why he gives us this is that for him to understand all of this, that before anything existed, the Father loved the Son eternally. And the Son loves the Father eternally. There is loving relationship. In John 3.35, we get a sense of this. The Father loves the Son and has given all all things into his hand. And John 14, 31, Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And so really the purpose of all the incarnation is that so you understand the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And this relationship exists forever. It never wavers. It never falters. And that's the foundation of Christianity is that God is love. Before we even understand that God is sovereign, that God is creator, that God is all-powerful, we are supposed to understand that God is love. All those other things are true. But the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And, And we understand, we understand in part, in part, that when we love, 
We love it away, and so we give. We understand in part what it means to love someone, and we want to give. We do this all the time. We give out of love, right? We give, our, we give presents out of love. You usually don't give out presents out of hatred or despise or spite, right? You, you give, you give out, your, out of love, you give your time to someone. You give your attention to someone. You really want to express a love to someone. You actually listen to them attentively. That's an incredible f- form of love. You give your affection to someone, right? You give out of love in this way. You give. God so loved. God in this way loves that he gives. And what does he give? He doesn't just give us anything. He gives us the best. He gives us the best. He gives us himself. More specifically, he gives his son. The father and son are one. He gives the eternal. He doesn't give a temporal thing. He doesn't give a toy that's going to break in five days or a year or that's forgotten to be played with eventually or discarded. He gives the eternal something which lasts forever and ever and ever. In Romans 8, 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will we not also how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the primary things he gives is his own self, he gives his son, and then through all that, all things. Does that mean we get whatever we want? No, it's not what it means. All doesn't mean we get whatever we want. We get all the things that we need. And the more and more that we walk with Jesus, the more and more we get to know who God is, we realize the only thing we actually need is him. Period. In this world, that's all we ever need is him. What more can he really give? What more could God really give besides his son? And so this John 3, C 16 makes a lot of sense, right? For God in this way loved us. He gave what? Himself, because himself is the best, and it's what we need. And what is the object of his love in this passage? It's the world, or more specifically, it's the cosmos. That's what this word means. It's everything. God so loved everything that he created, which is all things, that he gave himself. This is the way that God, because God so loved everything. In this way, he loved everything that he gave himself. His son, so that, here's the purpose, God loved everything that he created, that he gives himself, his only son, for this purpose, that whoever believes, whoever believes in him, in whoever believes in his son, whoever trusts in Jesus, should not perish, but have eternal life. The object of his love is the cosmos, all things he created. The beneficiaries of his love this is an incredible statement. Because God loves everything he created, the, one, the ones who benefit from this is the ones that trust in him. The ones that believe in him. The beneficiaries of God's giving love is you and I because we trust in him. We've talked about this three aspects of, of, of this word faith 
in scripture or belief. Or, and uh, the three aspects of it is, was, was first is this kind of uh, knowledge, right? This, this propositional truth that I, I ascertain this knowledge and I believe in this truth. And the other aspect of it is, which is the primary aspect, I think mostly it's used, and I think it's used here, is that I will trust in, it's a relationship. I will trust in this relationship. I trust the way you behave and the way you treat and the way you talk and the way we care. I trust our relationship. It's covenantal. And then the third aspect is faithfulness, the acts of love. And all that is included in this word faith or belief, living out trust. How do I demonstrate that I actually trust in our relationship. The beneficiaries of God's love for all of things he creates is you and I when we trust. He further clarifies, Jesus further clarifies this. I mean, really, this is the repetition over and over of what he's trying to say, this is how I love you. In John 3, 17, God did, for God did not send his son, did not, God did not, Give his son to the, to the world to condemn the world, right? Like, God so loved the world that he sent his son to condemn the world. Well, that doesn't really fit with that last passage. No, no. God sent his son in the world because he loves the cosmos, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's this condemnation. God did not send to condemn they did not send Jesus into the world to condemn, to, to judge the world guilty, to make, make the world liable for punishment. He didn't do that to, to say, hey, this is the trial in which I'm convicting you. This is not why he comes into the world, but to save it, to give freedom to the people that are held captive, who need a savior, to give eternity to. We are saved, particularly, he says, through him, to be saved through Jesus and him alone. Jesus, who is the manifestation of the Father's giving love. Only are we saved through this. Why would God send his son into the world and he gives his son into the world if we're not saved through him? He says that the purpose I'm sending him is to be saved and only him. Why would there ever be any other way? He gives the best to give us the best. In John 3, 14 through 15, to kind of backtrack a little bit, it's, it's just re-emphasizing all the things that said in 3.16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So must Jesus be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's that, that word, right? Whoever trusts in Jesus may have eternal life. God sent his son so whoever trusts in him may not perish but have eternal life. And this, this reference to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, this is a reference to Numbers 21. Would have been familiar to all that heard it. As God led the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness, he defended them from their enemies. He liberated them from their oppressors. He provided daily provisions, food from day in and day out as God led them literally in his presence as a pillar of fire and pillar of cloud in the wilderness. They visibly saw God's manifestation of his glory day in and day out. He resided with them in camp. They got to see it and they got to see physical daily visions. They knew that this was from God. 
In Numbers 21, it says this in verse 4, and the people became impatient on the way. Oh, man. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Did you, did you hear that? Their first complaint is that there's no food. And then their second complaint is this food is worthless. Well, what is it? Is there no food or is the food worthless? I mean, you can just tell they're like, there's not a rational statement in here. They're just impatient, they're just angry, they're just grumbling people. They're just grout. I mean, does that ever explain you in your life? I mean, I think this is day in and day out how I experience life. Angry and grumbling and like, oh, impatient. I mean, have you been impatient and grumbling about God's provision in your life? Have you been impatient and grumbling about the circumstance in which God has led you into the, a moment in your life or maybe right now? Maybe like, ah, I'm just tired of COVID. I'm tired of all these quarantine. I'm tired of this provision in which you've given me, God. Have you just led me all the way into this moment so I just die? Familiar thoughts, aren't they? The bottom line is what's, what's happening with the people that are being led by God in the wilderness is that they don't trust him. They get to a place where they don't trust him and they don't trust his provisions and they don't just, just don't trust him, they speak against him. So what does God do? God sends his serpents, fiery snakes, to bite them and to kill them because they do not trust him. And what, what, there's tangible things that they could trust. And then in that moment in, where you read Numbers 21, you actually read that some people repent. Some people come to Moses and God and said, man, yeah, we blew it. We made a mistake. Save us, Lord. We're gonna trust you. And they ask Moses, intervene on our behalf. And so Moses intervenes and asks God, and God says, hey, Moses, this is the solution. Make a fiery serpent, which are ones that are biting people and killing them. Make it out of bronze, put it on a staff. And then here's the thing. If anyone looks up in their pain and their agony and their misery and looks up to that staff, that your whole high, they'll be saved. It's an absurd statement. This is an absurd solution. Like it, I mean, it's this physical life they'll, they'll get, right? It's like, they're gonna die, but in the midst of your pain and your agony and your struggle and your sickness, if you just tilt your eyes upward and look, you'll be saved. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. This is not a bomb. This is not medical intervention. There is no action that they have to do. There's no prayers that they have to say there's no there's no work in which they have to do all they have to do is just change slightly their eye gaze and I don't know about you but when I am physically in pain I'm not much paying attention to anything else but my physical pain particularly like, just like just a small like a hangnail like, are you, are you one of these people, like, you just have to fiddle with it the whole time? Like, I can't focus on anything but that. 
but like serious pain. It's hard to move your eyes and focus off that thing. And that's all God says in this absurd thing. Hey, all you gotta do is just look up and you're saved. Your life will be saved. It's an absurd solution. But the lie is we hear work saves you. Work frees you. Your actions will free you from all these things. I mean, because those things work, what I do, something that I can do, that makes sense. That's tangible to me. That's understandable. I can wrap my mind around, okay, I need to do a certain thing, say a certain thing, be a certain way. The absurdity of this serpent on a staff lifted up is the absurdity that God presents us with Jesus nailed to a cross and we look up to him. Jesus nailed to a cross on our behalf. The cross is the place where he's literally lifted on high. These are these words that it, it's this double entendre, lifted on high, not just because he's lifted on a cross, but that he's lifted in exaltation, in his glory, the most glorious place where you find Jesus explore, exploring the Father's glory on earth is at the cross. It's absurd. It makes no sense. And yet there it is. God's glory is revealed. Because how is God's glory revealed? Because that is the manifestation of his love that freely gives. It's the manifestation of John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his son to die for us. And so every time as we, as we look up or we look at a cross, it's the idea, it's to avert your eyes and to, to look at Jesus and not in your circumstances. To realize how God loves you. It should seem absurd to us. Not, not that it should be magic. It's not magical that we look at any cross and then you're saved. That's not what it is, right? But it's the absurd solution. That, it's, that a physical gaze to Jesus, that a, a spiritual gaze of our hearts, just to focus, to change our focus and not to trust our circumstances, not to trust in our own ability, not to trust in anything else, but to trust in God and God alone, that he's your savior. In John three eighteen, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, right? God didn't need to send his son into the world to condemn because the condemnation was already upon us. We already stood condemned. That's why he sent his son. He, he sent his son because he loved all his creation and the creation stood condemned already. Look, his, his created thing, which was beautiful, is dead and he needs to bring it life because, right, he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We are dead things when we don't believe in the name of the only Son of God. And I want you to be very clear what that means. In the name of the only Son of God. It just means you do not trust in the power of God. You do not, that's what this phrase means. You do not trust in the authority of Jesus. So when we, when we pray, Often you say, pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. Those aren't magical words that were instructed for us to say. It's just saying, hey, we pray in the authority 
of Jesus because Jesus is our mediator. We get to only address the Father because the Father sent his Son. And he has the authority, just like the people went to Moses and asked Moses, can you intervene on our behalf? The only way we get to approach the Father is because we have the Son who has the authority and the power of the Father to approach him on our behalf. That's what that phrase means, in the name of. We stand condemned already. All of our sins, all of our actions, all of those things, the bottom line stem in all of our, uh, the definition of what sin is, is that we do not trust God. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, that we trust something else. I mean, that's the fundamental understanding of sin. And then all the other little sins that God identifies are really just a subset of that. And most, most manifestly for you and I, that what we trust is ourself and our own ability, our own work, our own actions, that idolatry. That we don't trust in the one who created all things. That we don't trust in the one who sustains all things. That we don't trust in the one who gives life to all things, who, who has the power and authority over all things. Jesus doesn't have to condemn. We already are condemned. He's come to save. He's come to, to free us from the moment, since the moment of the fall of the garden, he's come to give us life, to come to fulfill his promise. So God gives us this absurd solution, at least absurd in our mind. It's not absurd once you begin to understand God. God says, believe that I have the power. I have the ability. Uh, trust that I have the ability uh, to give life. Trust in that, that Jesus has the ability to give life to you, to give life, eternal life, to dead things. Look up to me. Look up to the cross to the cross, look up to Jesus who died for you. I mean, it's simply the movement and direction of our physical eyes, our spiritual eyes, the gaze of our heart. Is it set upon God, is it set upon Jesus, or is it set upon something else? Usually our circumstance, isn't it? And God, this says, set your attention and gaze upon me and you will be saved. Trust in me. That's all he's saying, trust in me. It really is no action at all on our part. It's just trusting that he has the authority, that he has the power to act and to give us. He has the authority and power to love things that aren't lovable. In John 3, 19, 21 says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and that people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And this, this is that cosmic scale thing again, right? And so here he says, like we, the lie is that we believe the cosmic scale, that we do more good, that it will outweigh our bad. And, and God says, look, at, here's the truth. I've just come, I'm pronouncing the judgment. I've come into the world God has revealed his love, and yet you still won't set your gaze upon me, that you're more interested in the dark things. And so here's the scale. If you're really interested in what the cosmic scale is, your good works never outweigh your bad works. 
Your good deeds never outweigh your bad deeds. It's always. That's the condemnation. You may think that you can outdo them, but you cannot because they're more corrupt. And the longer that you and I live, the more you realize this truth. The, the longer I've been your pastor, the more I realize I am not qualified to be your pastor because of my brokenness. And I think that actually teaches me more that that's where I should be. To realize there's nothing special in me. I'm not unique besides the calling that God gives. It's that understanding of our brokenness. And then it goes on to say in verse 20, For whoever does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to light, so that it may clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I mean, that just explains a lot, right? We don't like our bad things or our wicked things or the uh, wicked thoughts to be exposed or people to know. We kind of like, we'll just kind of keep that suppressed. And even when they do come out, we like to whitewash them. That's not so bad. It's not as bad as Bob. Right? I mean, that, that we, we do this. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be in it. And when we do expose them, we certainly do not want to repent of them because we like the dark. Whoever does, does these wicked things or does what is true, this is important, does is whoever practices worthless things. That's what it's trying to say, these wicked things. Whoever practices things that mean nothing, that have no significance, or ever versus whoever practices and lives according to the truth. So how do you live according to the truth? How does one do it? I mean, this is what we want to know, right? And if you're, if you're a person that believes that work sets you free, you really want to know the answer to this question. How do we live? How do I do the things that live according to the truth? Tell me. Lay it out for me. And this is what he says in this passage. This is how you live according to the truth. Look up to me. Set your eyes on me. Which is no work at all, is it? I mean, it took me nothing to physically move my eyes. And that's the point. That's what he's saying. It's like, this is not something deep, right? This, this is just setting your heart upon me. This is my power, my ability, my gift. Trust in my love. Trust in in my gift, trust in my ability. And then verse 21 just hammers this, hammers the nail home. Whoever does what is true, whoever practices what is true, which is, whoever does what is true acts faithfully. And what is this acting faithfully is looking up to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, right, says it this way. What are our eyes? Should be, they be fixed on? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The founder of your faith, the perfecter of your faith, is not you. It's not you. It's not your ability. It's Jesus. Act faithfully to show our deeds? No. It's act faithfully to show that any of your deeds that are faithful are carried out in God, by God, for God. That was the last line here. Done in God. It's not our deeds. It's not our work that sets us free. 
It is God's work that sets us free. The lie of the world, our action, our work, sets us free. The gospel truth of eternity. God loves, God gives, God works. God's love is not based on our work. God's love is not based on your loveliness. He didn't come in, God so loved the world because the world was so lovely. And the world was so worthy of this. In fact, it's the exact opposite. God so loved the world in this way because the world stood condemned and he didn't want that to happen. God's love is based on his character that he is love. He defines love. It's not on our ability to love that saves us or saves the world. It is not in our laying down of our life for others that saves us or saves others, although that is a good thing. There's a place for laying down your life and it's how we follow into the character of God, but it is no saving action for ourselves or for others. It's not in our ability to love that saves us. It is God's love for us. It is God's love, God giving his son, God laying down his life so that me may have eternal life. The prisoner's hope in the Nazi concentration camp was that death will set them free. And only death was their way out. You and I, the prisoners of this world, the prisoners of, of our own will and our own heart, the prisoner of our own self-determination and our idolatry, we are free eternally, not by our death, not by our sacrifice, but by God's death on the cross. His action, by, by his resurrection, by his defeating death in us, and defeating death. It's in this way God loves. He gave. He gave. The act of people loved by God is to trust him. It's to trust him. Set our eyes upon him. Trust in his ability Trust in his way, in his way that seems absurd to the world and to us. And like, but man, shouldn't there be more, God? Can't I do a little bit more? And I, he's like, no. Just set your heart and trust in me. Trust in my power and my authority. Set your eyes to Jesus. Set your eyes to God, whose work set you free. Let us pray. Gracious Father, what can we say to this? How can we respond to this love but to say thank you? But to move our eyes to you, our eyes of our heart to you and to trust you. Lord, so we pray this, Lord. As our eyes and our heart wander today, set them back onto you. 
And our, as our eyes wander tomorrow, set, our, set them back onto you anew. That we may trust you that we may trust that you loved us in this way and that you love us in this way and that you give your son to us and that even more so, you now give us your spirit that resides in us. Lord, we ask that the spirit continue to set our, our gaze and our heart and our minds to trust you day in and day out. And Lord, if there's someone right now who has not moved their eyes, Lord, move their eyes to you. Move their hearts to you. Let them stop trusting in their way or their ability, but trust in you. Remove the lie of this world from our heart and from our mind and set the truth, the truth of all eternity, that it is you and you alone that love in this way that you give. You give your son, you give your spirit, you give yourself to set us free. And Lord, we ask for this freedom for so many today. Change their hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, in his power, in his authority. And all God's people said, amen. amen.